this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another episode of the in focus podcast i am your host ji sampath what began on october 7th last year as a conflict between israel and hamas seems to be spreading through the entire region even after 100 days of conflict which has already claimed more than 25000 lives israel's military assault in gaza continues but this war has sprouted many secondary plot lines as well hezbollah the lebanon based shia group backed by iran has been exchanging fire with the israeli military shia groups that serve as iran's proxies in the region have been attacking us and israeli assets in syria and iraq Israel itself has been carrying out assassinations of senior Iranian generals and intelligence officers in Syria and Iran has done strikes on what it claims were Mossad assets in Syria it also carried out missile and drone attacks on Pakistani territories sparking a retaliatory strike on its own territory from Pakistan and amid all this the Houthis of Yemen have kept up attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea and in response the us has been bombing houthi positions in yemen so what does all this mean how does one make sense of what's going on is the entire west asia security architecture unraveling and how are these confrontations likely to develop in the weeks to come we discuss all this in this episode of in focus and we have with us stanley johnny the hindu's international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us thanks sampa thanks for having me here So Stanley the major line of conflict in West Asia until at least last month was fairly clear it was Israel attacking Hamas in Gaza now in the last 2 uh, 3 weeks there seems to have developed a great many subplots of this main plot line I mean can you just unpack for us the various secondary conflicts so to speak and why also regardless of who is attacking whom everybody seems to agree on one thing which is to launch some missiles into syria i mean what's what's going on so uh, sambat to begin with as you pointed out yes this started as a confrontation between hamas and israel after the october 7 hamas attack and the subsequent israeli attacks on gaza and if you look at the united states uh, so the biden administration had said from the very beginning that it was trying to contain the conflict it doesn't want the conflict to escalate So I think today is the 109th day of the war and the conflict has already widened. This is no longer about Israel and Palestine. This is now a regional crisis. You know, you have already mentioned the different actors who are involved in this crisis now. So how did we reach here? That's one question. We will come back to Syria later. So um see the the point is that let's first accept the fact that Israel is carrying out a vengeful disproportionate attack on gaza even president biden called it indiscriminate uh in one of his press conferences this is an indiscriminate disproportionate attack on gaza so israel has killed 25000 palestinians in 108 days and 62000 palestinians were wounded and roughly 90% of palestines of gaza's 2.3 million people have been displaced so this is something which we haven't seen in a long time this kind of an attack on a people people so this will have consequences you know certainly this will have consequences so in if you and and then as the next next step you look at the regional dynamics 
So there are, you know, the regional power centers are Arabs, Israel, which is a Jewish state, and Iran. And then you have the United States also as another power center in the region. So the Arab countries are increasingly upset and frustrated with the way Israel is carrying out the war. You look at the Saudi foreign minister's statement, which came out yesterday in CNN, in which he said that Saudi Arabia is still open to have ties with Israel, but he also says that there won't be any normalization with Israel unless the Palestine issue is resolved. So he has put that question to rest, the Saudis. The Jordanians are upset, the Egyptians are upset, but the Arabs do not want any direct confrontation with Israel, which is also very clear. They also do not want to endanger their existing peace agreements with Israel. So the Abraham Accord, Accords hold, uh, Egyptian-Israeli peace agreement holds, Egyptian, the Jordanian-Israeli peace agreement holds. Okay. So, But what the Arabs are doing is to uh, turn to diplomacy to turn up pressure on Israel uh, through the global uh, fora. That's what the Arabs are doing. But then the military resistance comes from the non-state actors, whether it is Hezbollah, Houthis, the PMF, uh, Popular Mobilization Forces, which, which means basically the Shia militia groups that are operating in Syria and Iraq. So these are the groups that started attacking Israeli or American positions. For example, Hezbollah is attacking Israel or Israeli positions in uh, you know northern Israel. And the Houthis are attacking the Red Sea, uh, ships in the Red Sea. And the PMFs are attacking American positions in Syria and Iraq. And the common factor here is that Iran is supporting all these groups. Stanley, just, just for a second, uh, I just want to clarify. The American positions in Iraq, I mean, like what, what kind of a presence does America still have uh, in Iraq? I mean, so the United States has some 2,000 to 3,000 troops still present in Iraq. But, you know, officially they are not part of combat. But the U.S. narrative is that the U.S. has retained the troops to fight the resurgence of the Islamic State, to prevent the resurgence of the Islamic State. And, uh, you know, the and they also have troops. Does the youth also have uh, troops in Syria as well? Yeah. So the difference between Iraq and Syria is that in Syria, in the United States, the U.S. has 2,000 to 3,000. We don't have the exact numbers. 2,000 to 3,000 tro troops are there. Iraqi parliament has passed a resolution asking the Americans to withdraw. And this resolution was passed in 2020 January after Qasem Soleimani was killed. But the executive branch of the Iraqi government hasn't officially asked the United States to withdraw. So technically, the U.S. troops are present in Iraq as part of an understanding with the Iraqi government. But when it comes to Syria, which is an occupation, the American presence in Syria is an illegal occupation because the Syrian government doesn't support the United States being present in Syria. But the United States keeps roughly 1,000 troops. Some accounts say 800 to 1,000 troops still in northeastern Syria. Which again, the narrative is that those troops are there in Syria to prevent the resurgence of Islamic State or other jihadist group. But the but you know a rather interesting part is that Idlib, which is the northwestern province of Syria, is run by Hayat al Sham, which is Hayat al Sham is a new name which Al Qaeda adopted for itself, and nobody has any problems with that apparently. Uh, but anyway, this is the narrative. Uh, so you know, if I go back to the point which I was discussing earlier. So the response, military response to Israel came from these non-state groups and all of them are supported by Iran. And Israel also, Israel's attack is not limited only to Gaza, right? Israel is carrying out airstrikes in Lebanon. It killed a Hamas commander. It killed a Hezbollah commander. And Israel is 
you know, frequently carrying out attacks inside Syria. And it has killed uh, one of the top advisors of IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, Musavi, on December 25th in Syria. And then just, you know, two days ago, Israel has killed the IRGC spy chief for Syria in an attack on Damascus. So Israel is targeting Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iranian commanders in frequent attacks in the neighboring countries. So the war is actually escalating, right? So Iran comes under pressure. And the Islamic State, which also sees Iran as its main enemy, because the Iranians played a critical part, constructive part in destroying the Islamic State, which is a fact. So the Islamic State, uh, you know, sensing an opportunity in the spreading instability, carries out, a, carries out an attack inside Iran. So Iran comes under regional as well as internal pressure. Its national security is at stake. So Iran also wants to force, uh, you know, wants to project force. So then Iran carries out attack in three places, in Iraq, Iraq, Kurdistan, in Syria, and then in Pakistan. And, and then Pakistan retaliates. And the United States, which has historically been a guarantor of, uh, you know, uh, safety and security for the shipping lines in the region, because the United States is the most powerful country that is present in the region. Basically, this American role was threatened by the Houthis when they started carrying out attacks on the Red Sea. So the United States also starts attacking the Houthis. So this is how the war has spread across the region. You know, and and and, and you see there are multiple actors. But if you look at the, the operational centers, I would say there are three operational centers in this conflict. One is, of course, Israel which is attacking the Palestinians, which is also attacking Iran, Iranian, Hamas, and Hezbollah positions across the region. And then you have Iran. Iran is not directly attacking Israel, but Iran is actually supporting its proxies, which are attacking both Israel and the United States. And the third power center is the United States, which is the historical superpower in the region. And the United States, you know, you know has also joined the conflict when it started attacking Houthis and it had also carried out attacks in Syria and uh, uh, Iraq. And coming to your second question briefly, why Syria? See, Syria, the problem with Syria is that, you know, it is still recovering from the civil war and Syria has been, uh, you know, uh, a battleground for the regional powers for the last 14 years. And Israel uh, when Israel looks at Syria, it sees Syria as a conduit between Hezbollah and uh, Iran. You know, so Israel wants to strike all those shipments. And Israel now also started attacking the Iranian uh, leaders, military leaders inside Syria. Syria doesn't have a very powerful air defense system. You know, Syria's air defense system is Russia supplied. And those are predominantly, I think, supplied around Syrian positions and also Russian positions. So that Israel can freely operate in Syria's Syria's skies. And when it comes to the Americans, America has troops inside Syria. And America also sees the Iran-funded militia groups, Shia militia groups that operate in Syria as a threat. So the United States is also carrying out attacks targeting them. You know? So this is the situation where Syria is being bombed by different sections. And the Iranians carried out attack on Syria because in Idlib, which is not run by the Syrian government, Idlib is run by jihadists. And 
Iranians say that the Islamic State is getting training. They have training camps in Idlib. So that's what they are targeting. So Syria is practically stuck between all these regional powers. Right. Thank you so much, Stanley, for this really excellent unpacking of uh, something which is very complicated that is going on in the region. I think so many different players uh, and even the militia groups, there are so many of them, it's difficult to keep track. Now, coming to one of the points you just uh, referred to, which is uh, the fact that Israel has been taking out uh, Iranian assets in Syria and Lebanon, especially the, the spy chief for Syria and so on. Uh, did Iran not anticipate uh, this kind of response from Israel uh, when it sort of decided to have its proxies go after Israel and U.S. positions in the region? Because Iran seems to have suffered some serious uh, losses in terms of its major, uh, very senior people. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, in the past, the Israelis had carried out a number of airstrikes inside Syria, mainly targeting Iran's supplies for Hezbollah. So the Israelis had stayed away from directly attacking Iranian military leaders. But that has changed after October 7. Now, there are two ways to look at it. One, Israel sees that, okay, Hamas is a proxy. Hamas has its military capabilities, that's true. Israel is also now, you know, realizing it in the hard way. But at the same time, the main enemy is Iran. And Iran has, you know, strengthened itself by supporting all these non-state actors in the region. So Israel wants to send out a clear signal to the Iranians that they would not go unpunished. And Syria, you know, given its very complex situation uh, in, uh, in today's West Asia's, West Asia's geopolitics, so Israel has the free hand to operate in, inside Syria. So the Israelis are not attacking Iran, Iranians in Iran proper. Even the Americans were not doing it. When America attacked the Kataib Hezbollah commander, or even when the United States killed Qasem Soleimani in 2020 January, they attacked Iraq. So Iraq and Syria kind of so different regional players carrying out attacks inside their territory. So Iran proper is not being attacked. It was the Islamic State which attacked Iran proper, not the Israelis. So Israelis say, think that after October 7, they need to actually turn up the pressure. They need to start attacking Iranian military figures inside Syria. This is what the Israelis are doing. The second analysis is that, you know, which many people are, we don't know, this is a speculative thing. We, many people are now uh, commenting about it, which is that the Israelis are trying to provoke Iran into uh, doing something stupid. Basically, you know, the Israelis are trying to drag the Iranians directly into the conflict so that the United States will also be forced to, to join the war against Iran. So this is another explanation. But whatever, whatever the actual reasons are, this is evident that in the past, the Israelis had not directly targeted, I mean, uh, they had carried out precision attacks, for example, targeting Iran's nuclear program chief, etc., etc. Here they are directly attacking Iran's military figures inside Syria. So and so they, they clearly see that Iran is their main rival and they are ready to risk, you know, take, they are ready to take greater risks in targeting Iran. And Iran is also coming under pressure. That's what explains Iran's attack on Iraq's Kurdistan. Because after carrying out the attack, what the Iranians said was that they destroyed a Mossad operational house. We don't know. The Israelis haven't responded to this. Uh, the Kurdish authorities say 
it was not a Mossad operational house. It was the house of a local businessman that was attacked. But then you have IRGC media, IRGC linked media say the local businessman uh, had excellent ties with Mossad. He was a local colleague of Mossad. That's what uh, uh, one of the Iranian media claimed. But whatever it is, we don't know. This is a very uh, tricky situation. But after carrying out the attack on Kurdistan, Iran said what Iran claimed was that they attacked an Israeli operational house. So which is, which is a retaliation against the killing of Musavi on December 25th. And after that, the Israelis again carried out attack against IRGC in Syria. So which means Iran is again coming under pressure. So this is kind of a slide now. This is a dangerous slope, uh, you know, in, in the region. Right. And uh, how, do, how do we understand the military exchange between Iran and Pakistan, for instance? If, if, if as Iran claimed, there were, there were some kind of jihadi groups which were based on Pakistani territory and carrying out attacks, uh, in Iran, I mean, Iran could not, could have informed Pakistan that it was going to take them out. Right? What was the need to not inform Pakistan and go ahead and do it? Because once Pakistan retaliated, uh, whatever Iran may have sought to achieve by say uh, projecting force, as you put it, I mean, it couldn't it couldn't respond after Pakistan's retaliation. So what happened to this projection of force then? I mean, that, that sounds a bit yeah. It odd, is difficult no? to understand the it is difficult to understand the strategic thinking behind Iran's decision to attack. Pakistan. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Iran's explanation is that Jaisal Adil, uh, which is operating in Iran's system Balochistan, as well as Pakistan's Balochistan, is being tolerated by the Pakistani authorities. This is what the Iranians are claiming. And on the other side, the Pakistanis are saying, uh, saying that uh, uh, the Baloch Liberation Front is being tolerated or harbored by the Iranians. So, Sistan Baluchistan had carried out an attack on December 15th uh, in one of the border cities, killing 11 Iranian, not Sistan Baluchistan, the Jaysh al-Adil had carried out an attack uh, in Sistan Baluchistan and killing uh, 11 Iranian security personnel. So, Iran saw three attacks on its interests. One is the killing of the IRGC commander and the other is the Islamic State attack and the third is the attack by Jaysh al-Adil. So Iran wants to, you know, retaliate uh, against all these three attacks. And they may have, I mean, it's difficult to understand what was the strategic calculus, but my sense is that, uh, you know, Pakistan itself was going through, uh, you know, a very difficult uh, phase. Uh, Pakistan has its own economic problems. And Iran, uh, and, and also you see Pakistan's attack was also, basically it is a proportional attack. The crisis did not escalate. Iran wants to send a clear message that this is a regional power. So if you continue to tolerate these groups, irrespective of your nuclear status, we will take military, cross-border military action. This is the message Iran is trying to send to the Pakistanis. This is the same message Iran is trying to send to its, its regional rivals as well. So Iran in the past had supported the non-state actors, but it restrained itself from taking direct military action. But I think here, Iran is clearly sending a message to everybody, both its both the Sunni militant groups as well as its conventional rivals that we are ready to take risk. I think that message was also sent out. It's true, the Pakistan's retaliatory strikes actually showed Iran's limitations. But at the same time, Iran had also sent out a clear message that uh, uh, when it's, you know, if its national security red lines are breached, uh, they would not hesitate to take military, cross-border military actions in the region. 
Right. Now, coming to the other, uh, whatever, sub-theater of this conflict, so to speak, which is the Red Sea. Now, the Houthi attacks have really affected uh, commercial shipping. I think I read some statistic uh, yesterday which said that around this time last year, I think January, about 400 ships were passing through and this time there was just 150. And they were, most of them were taking a route uh, I mean, via the you know, tip of Africa rather than through the Suez Canal, which is increasing uh, insurance premiums if you go through Red Sea and which is sort of increasing costs and so on. So I was just wondering, so has the U.S., which has been carrying out uh, strikes on Houthi positions and, and sort of projecting some kind of you know, force in the region to protect commercial shipping and deter Houthis, how successful has it been? And secondly, China, which is which is one of the major uh, powers whose exports cross through the Red Sea to its route, uh, it hasn't said anything uh, so far despite suffering losses either. So what is going on here in, in the Red Sea? Okay, the first part of the question, whether the American attacks on Houthis are deterring the Houthis, Houthi attacks on the commercial ships. So the United States, I think, has so far carried out six airstrikes against the Houthi positions in Yemen. And even after the sixth airstrike, the Houthis uh, attacked one of the U.S. flagged vessels in the Red Sea. So clearly, at least as of now, clearly the American attacks hadn't stopped the Houthis or destroyed their capabilities from attacking ships in the Red Sea. So see, the Houthis cannot, Houthis do not have uh, the wherewithal, the military capabilities to lay siege to the Red Sea. So if you look at the way they operate, what they are using is sea denial tactics. They are using uh, short-range missiles, uh, drones, to make it is to make it unnavigable for the commercial vessels to pass through the Red Sea. And we all know the importance of the Red Sea, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Sea that opens into the, into the Indian Ocean, and it connects these through body of waters. Uh, you know. It connects these two body of waters through the Suez Canal in the north and Babel Mandeb in the south. And the closest port to Babel Mandeb is Hodeida. And the Houthis control this. This gives the Houthis enormous strategic advantage to employ this CDNL tactics. And this is what they are doing. So as of now, the American attacks haven't stopped the Houthis. And will the United States succeed in it? That we have to wait and see. But if you look at the Houthis' history, the Houthis came to power in Yemen, at least in Sana'a, in northern Yemen, in 2014. Saudi Arabia declared war against the Houthis in 2015. The Houthi ceasefire came into existence only last year, 2023. You know, there were talks going on, but the ceasefire actually took hold after the Saudi-Iran rapprochement that was reached in May 2023. So, which means the Houthis survived seven years, seven and a half years of Saudi bombing. And they only grew in strength in Yemen. And right now, after they started attacking the vessels, in solidarity with the Palestinians, quote-unquote, basically the Houthis, according to an international crisis group report, they have become more popular inside Yemen and they are finding new, more new recruits. So uh, we are talking about a group that survived seven years of bombing by a neighboring bigger power. And the United States and the UK are carrying out attacks from the Red Sea or the Arabian Sea from their vessels. So practically speaking, will they be able to destroy the Houthis? I don't think so. I may be wrong. We have to wait and see. That is one thing. 
And then why China is not condemning this? Not just China. Yes, China, China has high stakes in the Red Sea, uh, especially for its trade uh, with the Arab. Uh, and then secondly, Egypt. Egypt has taken a big hit because uh, there is a massive drop in the Suez Canal traffic. So which means Suez Canal is Egypt's main source of foreign revenue. So Egypt, which is already going through economic problems, will take a hit. But even Egypt hasn't joined America's uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian. No Red Sea country has joined America's Operation Prosperity Guardian. Egypt, Egypt is an American ally. They still stayed out of it, out of this war against the Houthis. That is, I think, that is mainly because the United States' unconditional support for Israel, when Israel is carrying out this disaster war on the Palestinians, that, I think, that has practically, uh, you know, turned the Arab street, Arab street opinion completely against Israel and the United States. So it is difficult for a country like Egypt, which is being affected by this Houthi attacks, to join the American military campaign. That is one thing. When it comes to China, it's, it's the same thing because China has voiced its support for the Palestinian cause. China also sees that the United States, you look at the United States, which was once a shaper of the geopolitical outcome in the region. Now, the United States is acting like a helpless arsonist. America is not able to stop the war. Despite being the closest ally of the United States, it is not able to provide any kind of stability. You know, on the other side, it is carrying out this attack on Houthis and its attacks are not preventing the Houthis from launching further attacks. So basically, it was the United States had taken it upon itself to provide security to the shipping lines of West Asia. And that security is being breached by the Houthis. So the United States is also in a very difficult position now. And it is, you know, you, you, you can see how the, uh, the Israeli prime minister publicly disagreed with the American plan for the post-war Gaza. So the United States is also struggling. So China being, you know, China sees the big picture. Yes, it is taking some economic impact, but at the same time, uh, you know, it doesn't want to get involved in the, in the conflict. And the Indians have taken more or less the similar position because India is also being attacked by uh, Red Sea being uh, turned into a battlefield. But India didn't join the military campaign. Of course, India is a neutral country. It doesn't want to join any military campaign. What India did was to send its foreign minister to Iran to talk to the Iranians, you know, seeking security for its vessels. The Chinese did the same thing. So you saw, I think, Reuters or AFP carried an interview with one of the Houthi leaders just two days ago in which the Houthi leaders said that Chinese and Russian ships would be spared from attacks. This is what the Indians are also trying to do. Right. Uh, one final uh, question, Stanley, before we wrap up. Now, uh, you've spoken in detail about, uh, you know, the in ineffectiveness of uh, American strikes and how the U.S. has not been able to either contain the conflict or, uh, you know, do anything from uh, anything to sort of resolve it in any way, despite being uh, a the biggest power in the region and also having um, the second biggest power in the region, Israel, as its closest ally. Now, I was just wondering... Uh, the U.S. Uh, for long has been recognized as a big boss, so to speak, in the region. Has it, in a, in a way, conceded that position to Israel, which is which seems to be dictating what even the U.S. may or may not do? See, right now there is no big boss in the region. I think that is the problem. The United States, if it wants that, it can put pressure on Israel. Because American presidents have done that in the past. We discussed uh, it in our last... Uh, right. podcast, I think. Right. You know, Reagan had done it. Bush had done it. Jimmy Carter had done it. I mean, 
It is, I think, uh, I had said this earlier, Biden's policy towards West Asia is a train wreck. I mean, in, in the case of uh, Ukraine, at least you can make, a, make an argument out of it because Russia is your rival. But here, by offering unconditional support to Israel, and while on the other side saying that they wanted to contain the war uh, spreading into the region, those were unrealistic uh, goals. Because the United States, if it didn't want the war to spill over, it didn't want instability to spread across the region, it should have reined Israel in. And it, it should have pushed for other solutions to the crisis. That's not what Biden did. And that's why the crisis has now spread across the region. Even now the U.S. is, uh, you know, Israel cannot fight on its own. Israel keeps getting military support from the United States even now. The war, it's 108th, 109th day. Uh, today, there is an American military, American intelligence assessment that was reported by Wall Street Journal, which says in 100 days of war, uh, the Israelis have killed only 20% of Hamas fighters. And Israel says that destroying and dismantling Hamas is its main military objective. And 100 days of fighting has practically destroyed the whole of Gaza, but it has killed only 20% of Hamas fighters and all the Hamas leaders are alive. So is Israel meeting its military objective? It is not. So the Biden administration should have, uh, you know, um, used its uh, pressure tactics to rein Israel in and pushed for other solutions and bring back some stability. For some strange reason, uh, the United States is not able to do this. That's why I think even this question is coming up, whether Israel is the new boss. But practically, this policy, Biden's unconditional support for Israel when Israel is destroying Gaza, that has now snowballed into a wider crisis in the region, plunging the whole of West Asia into anarchy. Right. One, one last uh, comment, Stanley. When you just, uh, when, I mean, if we look at Biden's uh, uh, track record, I mean, he's he's considered by many to be the American president who has had the the, the most intimate uh, relationship with the Israel lobby and in Israel's uh, long-term objective, at least geopolitical objective in the region, which we know from the years of Obama and Trump, not just Biden, has been uh, to sort of you know. Uh, put Iran in its place, so to speak. And in that context, it would appear, like you you, you did say it, there was a speculation, that its military objective, uh, maybe uh, specifically, of course, in Gaza is to dismantle Hamas. But is it is it possible that the larger objective here is to draw Iran into a conflict so that its geopolitical objective of, you know, uh, neutralizing Iran uh, permanently would be sort of brought onto the table with the U.S.? Is that what is happening? Because the needle, so to speak, of what is going on, if you sort of project it into the future, that is the direction to which uh, everything seems to be trending, draw Iran into a bigger conflagration rather than, you know, what it is today doing, uh, whatever it wants to do through proxies. I think that's a sound argument because Israel is not fighting only in Gaza, even when it says dismantling Hamas is its primary objective. It is also directly attacking Iranian leaders, Iranian military commanders. So which shows Israel clearly wants Iran to do more in the war. And if, if Iran is directly involved in the conflict, you know, that means the United States would be drawn in. And the United States has shown that it is, it can be drawn in, right? In, who, in, the, in the Red Sea, the United States is already a party to the war. So the United States can be drawn in. So it is a sound argument. 
So we don't know whether the Israelis are actually, there is a plan behind it. I don't know. But I think this is clearly a sound argument because Israel sees Iran as its number one rival. And uh, uh, Iran is, you know, it, it is a weak country, internally weak, but it is also, uh, you know, using the proxies effectively uh, to target Israeli and American positions. So you can see this, uh, especially in this conflict now, because no, none of these non-state actors are being deterred. Hamas is still firing rockets into Israel, still. Hezbollah is still attacking Israel, despite Israel's uh, uh, counterattacks. Kataib Hezbollah and other Shia mobilization units, they still attack American position. The latest was yesterday, I think, day before yesterday. They attacked an American base in Iraq. So practically nobody knows how to contain this as of now. Um, so yes, this is the situation. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Stanley, uh, for these detailed observations and uh, insights. I mean, it really is uh, uh, a very complicated and some might say fascinating uh, geopolitical uh, chessboard and uh, whatever is going on there. But at the same time, on a, at a humanitarian level, it is a huge uh, tragedy and a disaster that's unfolding, especially in Gaza, but also in Syria and other places in the region. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how uh, things develop in the weeks to come. Thank you so much once again. Pleasure talking to you, Sam. Thanks, Safa. Pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.